This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day to day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. We're celebrating our 100th episode this week. If you like the show, please share, rate and review it. It really helps new listeners to find us. You can either listen to this episode as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. For the next two weeks, we're picking some of our favourite pieces from the last few months, just in case you missed them. Coming up, two tales of coming of age and finding out what matters most. In this episode, Heartstopper's Kit Connor confronts the aftermath of being forced to come out under the gaze of millions. And we hear how food helped The Guardian's restaurant critic, Grace Dent, create small, meaningful moments with an immense loss. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Before we begin, just a warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, Kit Connor is 19, lives at home with his mum and dad, and is a megastar thanks to Netflix's take on the teen gay love story. Here, the actor talks to Charlotte Edwards about accusations of queer baiting, being outed at 18, and how being queer can be beautiful. Read by Callum Finlay. We are walking in Borough Market, Kit Connor and I. It's his favourite area of London, he says, then worries that might sound like a dumb cliché. No, but it's cool, he continues, speaking aloud these thoughts as he untangles them even if it is a cliché. This is the bit of London he knows best, in that it's 30 minutes from Croydon, where he lives. Yes, with his mum and dad. He's still only 19, after all, even if we've been watching him on screen since eight. He likes that Borough is near the South Bank, the National Theatre, the British Film Institute. He's going through a retro phase with films, incidentally, an exploration of the history of the leading men in cinema. He's gone all the way back to Marlon Brando's early work. Also, James Dean. He was recently photographed for Vogue in Breton Stripes, invoking the famous Dean shot from the summer of 1955. 
He likes the brooding, the look. I'm trying to do it a little bit, he says. What do you think? He turns to face me. He's wearing a white t-shirt and battered Carhartt jacket, which he picked up in a vintage shop on a recent trip to New York. Yes, the hair has a touch of fifties, longish and swept back on top, cropped-ish on the sides. Come to think of it, that complexion does too. Milky, lightly freckled, slight ruddiness creeping up the cheeks. Although I can't imagine him grimacing through the smoke of a dangling cigarette, or driving faster than the speed limit, or throwing a punch in a state of existential rage. He's just too sweet. Nor can I imagine hurting his feelings. So I say, yes, very brooding rebel. The thing is, he doesn't like the word heartthrob, he says as we continue walking. It's a bit... He leaves the sentence unfinished. Cringe is what I guess he means. Unsuitable for the modern-day teenager. Even one playing the hot lead in a Netflix love story like Heartstopper. The show that made Kit a star is based on the graphic novels by Alice Oseman about two schoolboys navigating their first queer relationship. Connor plays Nick, who is bisexual. Joe Locke plays Charlie, who is gay. In the first month after release in April 2022, Heartstopper was viewed for a staggering 53 million hours, quickly becoming the fifth-most-watched English-language Netflix show. The second series, which drops on the 3rd of August, is the most anticipated series this summer. Not that Connor was a total novice to the industry. Unlike Joe Locke, who had no experience, Connor had played the young Elton John in the biopic Rocket Man, released in 2019, working alongside Taron Egerton, Jamie Bell and Richard Madden. He appeared alongside Lily James in the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Society, released in 2018, and Ben Wishaw in Little Joe, released in 2019. None of this prepared him for the sudden impact fame of Heartstopper. Yes, there were the trips to fashion shows in Paris, there were the front row seats and the fuss and flattery, but there was also a shit show on Twitter. Questions about his sexuality, people prying into his love life, and the online stalking of his family members, including an older sister, aged 23, and brother, aged 21, who could not care less and are not very interested in my career. While Heartstopper is explicitly about queer love, Connor was not asked his orientation when he auditioned. It would have been so inappropriate to ask a 16-year-old, he says. But there was something unspoken in the little notice before the casting call saying, we really want the characters to pass authentically. I was thinking, well, I feel I can play this role very authentically. I knew that I was a queer man, but I didn't feel I wanted the world to know. Not because I was ashamed, but because it was private. All good, until he was papped holding hands with Maya Rafiko, his co-star in the forthcoming film A Cuban Girl's Guide to Tea and Tomorrow. Heartstopper obsessives wanted to know why he was holding a girl's hand. He was accused of queerbaiting, defined as straight people appropriating queer culture. Some might shrug off online pylons like this, but Connor says he 
was still very freshly 18, still newly in the public eye. I wasn't used to the idea of millions of people watching what I was doing or having a genuine interest in my private life. At home, one evening, he padded about the house working himself into a stew, then did something he now describes as, frankly, a bit rash. He typed, I'm bi. Congrats for forcing an 18-year-old to out himself. I think some of you missed the point of the show. Bye. It was a human, instinctual reaction, he says. I did it, turned off my light, and went to sleep. On set, the following morning, his cast member friends ribbed the hell out of him, he says with a smile, which was good, because it took the sting out of it all. But he wants to be serious for a second. He wants to add that the whole point of the show is that queerness is not always so stereotyped. There are so many lines in the show where someone goes, Nick Nelson, he's the straightest guy in school. He's the captain of the rugby team, so there's no way he's queer. Sometimes we just need to give people space. Season two, which deviates a little from Oseman's original work, incorporates a lot of Nick's struggles coming out, which is important, he says. He won't say who he is or isn't dating now. He will say that he'd be self-conscious of dating a girl. I would, annoyingly. I would be more conscious and might be less open about it. Later, he returns to this subject. Although now I know that I'm queer, I personally don't find it a super-defining factor. I wouldn't want to be defined by queer actor. I want to play all parts. Hopefully I can do that if my career lasts, if I flourish, touch wood. But first, we discuss Heartstopper. The show's charm is its innocence, and for that reason, Connor never thought it would be a hit. We were surprised anyone was watching it, he says, extra shocked when he learned American audiences loved it too. He couldn't imagine savvy modern teenagers buying into the guilelessness. We don't have any drugs in this show, We don't have any sex. We don't even have vapes. So, yes, it was wild. Especially with 18-year-olds. I thought it might hit a slightly lower age group. I was looking at the TV shows people my age were watching, and it was super saturated with dark, sexual content. Pretty stressful to watch shows. Euphoria, chiefly. But also 13 Reasons Why, Top Boy, Skins is still popular, Even Stranger Things and Sex Education had their moments. Heartstopper provided an antidote, Connor believes. It was called the anti-euphoria thing, which was catchy but true. It subverted what was out there in other ways too, he argues. For the most part, queer media is pretty dark and depressing and involves a lot of trauma by focusing on how hard it is to be yourself whereas we wanted to push the other message, that being queer can be beautiful. There will be adversity, sure, there are highs and lows, but the highs can be really high, so it's worth fighting for. Plus, he feels it's important for young queer people to have a gentle, romantic show. I don't think there's a lack of queer sex in the media, but a lot of the time when queer people are on screen, especially gay and bisexual men, They are heavily sexualised, so I think there's something quite nice about the fact that we're not sexualising it. 
Director A. Ross Lynn deliberately sought the opposite, Connor says, to capture the sentimentality and charm of old Hollywood romances, complete with Charlie standing on tiptoes for a deep, passionate kiss after sports day. Perhaps because of this, audience appeal was surprisingly cross-generational. Sure, he gets the teenagers showing him the tattoos they'd had in tribute, most popular, the leaf illustrations that the series lifted from the original graphic novel, but also their characters, all the little hi that Nick and Charlie say to each other. People have that in speech bubbles. But he's also stopped by older, queer men in their 30s, but also plenty in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, proud and overjoyed that younger people in the queer community are starting to have these experiences in school. Season two of Heartstopper is less chaste, in that the issue of arousal is touched on, so to speak. Connor says the love scenes are a lot less awkward. Firstly, because the relationship between Nick and Charlie shifts, because it's no longer this angsty, nervous, adorable, like, we have a crush on each other. We are boyfriends now. But also because Joe and I are so much more comfortable doing those scenes with each other. It was a lot easier. And that relaxed vibe comes across. We've all improved as actors, too. By now, we've sat down outside Brother Marcus, a Middle Eastern cafe, and are ordering coffee. He orders a latte but declines food, explaining, I'm not one of those people who can leave the house without breakfast. I've been doing, like, eggs on toast over the last few months. There's something in his need still to be an ordinary 19-year-old that makes him impress on everyone how normal he is. This is the kind of conversation he has with Olivia Coleman, who plays his mum in Heartstopper, he says. Because she's just so normal, so emotionally available. The life that I lead is really quite normal and very boring. The highlight of my day is often walking to Tesco. I can tell a story about my day-to-day life and she'll be right there with me and interested. But the next minute, we're talking about Taron Edgerton, who he worked with on Rocket Man, and whom I am lucky now to be able to call a friend. And a recent lunch he had with Sir Elton John, whom, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm lucky enough to be able to call a friend. That segues into this. The first time I met him was in Cannes, which is an insane sentence. The combination of growing up on film sets, the pandemic and sudden fame has done something unusual to his development, Connor believes. He says he's both very mature, not least he was earning money when his older siblings were still receiving pocket money, and also very immature. He's shy, introverted, rubbish in group settings. It was like, how do I do this social life thing? I really can't talk. One-on-one, he's relaxed, voluble and terribly sincere, as I am witnessing today. Every few minutes, we've been stopped by young people, wanting a picture, wanting to tell him how much they love the show, wanting to say, wow, man, thank you for everything you do. It was worse when he was at school, he says, blush receding after another selfie. Teens used to congregate at his bus stop, knowing he'd be there, same time every morning. 
it made the ordinarily self-conscious state of being a teenage boy doubly, triply worse. He felt the scrutiny intensely. Couldn't roll out of bed, must with his shirt tail flapping. Had to check the mirror, check he was presentable. Redo his hair, check he looked like you're supposed to, as the boy whose clips were viewed by billions on TikTok. So, yes, I say. I can see why he's preoccupied by the description, heartthrob. As the school's star rugby player, Nick Nelson needed to have physical presence. The series' producers supplied a nutritionist, and he recounts how he did push-ups, hundreds a day, in his dressing room. Wardrobe put him in a school uniform a size too small to give a sense of mass, although occasionally he looked as if he would split the seams, Hulk-style. The character in the comics was like six foot two and quite burly. He's a big boy, an athlete. I saw that and was like... I'd like to put on a little bit of muscle. It was exciting. By the time we came on to do season two, there was definitely a noticeable difference. I'd also grown in height. Wardrobe took one look at him and ditched the two-fitting uniform. I think the crossover between seasons one and two is about a night, but in reality it was a year. When you watch it, Nick has inexplicably bulked up a lot. Maybe you have to suspend disbelief a little. In March, Connor's personal trainer sent corners of the internet into a sweaty meltdown by posting a picture of him shirtless, moody, and let's just say, quite buff, alongside a video of their session. Fans inevitably spoke. While most approved, Kit's the only person who could make me watch a 25-minute gym video, said one. Others lashed out, calling him basic, and a beast. Has he felt pressure to conform to the Marvel body type? (laughs) It's not a thirst trap, he laughs. I'd just been in the gym, so I'd got a bit of a pump, and it's like the best possible light to take a picture. People say, you don't really look like that. I agree. I don't. I used to go five days a week, and at first it was very much about the aesthetic. Now I go a couple of days a week for my mental health. I just sit down and kind of blow off some steam, and I find it really helpful. He lapses into an anecdote about how he was coming back from Milan yesterday, and the driver who picked him up at the airport was clearly using that muscle-bound superhero picture as his steer. He looks me up and down, and I shake his hand, and then he's like, Oh, you're a pretty decent size. I was like, sorry? He said, I saw this picture of you and you look quite big, and I thought, oh, that's probably just him in a film or something, he's probably not really like that. But you are. You're pretty well built. Now Connor is telling me the story, he isn't sure if it sounds like a humble brag, and he gets in a tangle saying that it's both funny that people look him up and see that photo, but also embarrassing. He wouldn't want that to be the enduring image. But also, it's not the worst image to have out there. After all, he's not ashamed of his body or anything. It's just, it wasn't meant to be a thirst trap. He doesn't want to be the lame guy who posts shirtless pictures of himself after working out. His blush deepens as he chases his tail, trying to escape the spiralling topic of his physique. 
Eventually, I redirect him with a new question, and he looks grateful and relieved. Connor was born in March 2004, youngest of three. His parents, Richard and Caroline, both in advertising, were definitely not the kind to drag him to Harry Potter auditions. But he went to the children's performing arts group Stagecoach to overcome shyness and get me out of my shell. This led to a series of small parts, Sky Sitcom Chickens, An Adventure in Space and Time, Casualty, before he moved up a step to more recognisable roles. Tom Anderson in Get Santa, Archie Beckles in CBBC's Rockets Island, Petya Rostov in the BBC's 2016 War and Peace. He appeared on stage at the Old Vic as Alexander in Fanny and Alexander in 2018, although it pissed him right off that he had to share the part with two other kids because of UK child labour laws. He attended the Whitgift School, which he says was a rugby-playing school, not unlike the one in Heartstopper. If you weren't getting down and tackling people into the mud, then you probably were not that cool, he says. He was a drama boy. Not unpopular. I had friends. But when Heartstopper came out, certain people started talking to me that otherwise wouldn't have. I had these big, macho rugby boys coming up and saying... I watched Heartstopper, and I really liked it. Well done. And I was like, wow. His fears that there would be a negative reaction to Nick and Charlie kissing in the series were unfounded. Luckily, I was not bullied. An American mother and her 14-year-old stop him. The mother does all the talking. They are from Seattle. Her daughter loves the show. She'd love a photo. The daughter can't speak. She's so struck by real flesh and blood Nick Nelson. She looks both pleased and startled as they pose. What's your name? Connor asks her. She whispers it. Really good to meet you, he says, shaking her hand. He says he loves being mobbed, loves the attention, loves appearing in photo shoots for Vogue, for GQ. A slim teenager with high cheekbones stops. Oh my god, he repeats, over and over, hand to his mouth. The girls he's with are giggling. I'm worried he's going to cry. Connor is super friendly. Super appreciative that he stopped to say hello, he tells him. While he was recognised a bit in New York, he was there for work but also went to Pride and Vintage Shopping to build on his collection of Carhartt jackets. On the whole, he was the observer. He felt like just another teenager, alone, without family, free from the burden of being known. He was astonished by the stars he saw. He doesn't name them, just says, people in the street that made me go, oh my god. He also went to a bar, via Carota in the West Village, and immersed himself in the pastime of people watching. It was one of the first times that I've been able to do that. I just sat at the bar, ordered my food and watched. I saw two people on a first date, two people on an anniversary dinner, a person at the bar reading a book. It was fascinating. He could riff for hours on why observing life is great. He's discovered Raymond Carver's stories, which are amazing in many ways, not least for his dyslexia, 
being short. He can write poetically about things that are so mundane. It's the filmmaking he loves too. Observational stuff like After Sun, and a short he saw the other day called Being Human by Swedish director Clara Bond. I always refer back to that clip of Sir Ian McKellen doing an Oxford Union address. He said if you can't afford tickets to the theatre, or if you don't have a TV, sit on the bus and watch people. Go and see how people live and exist. Start there, and it'll make you a better actor. And I do think that it does. When people ask what makes a good actor, aside from classical training, I answer whether it's true or not. You have to be able to understand people, how they work, how different people would react to different things. It's the lunchtime rush, so I walk him back to Borough to get the train. He skips enthusiastically and earnestly through a range of subjects, from AI to cancel culture. I mean, maybe this is just me being a hippie, but I think people should just be nice to each other and have an open discussion about when people are saying things that are ignorant and wrong. He tells me how much he'd like to do more theatre, and also play roles that are against type. I would lose the weight for a role if I had to. And we're at the station. He's sweet and polite and thanks me a million times for my time. He asks me if I'm going to be all right getting the tube and getting home, and then when I laugh, he realizes what he said and colours. That was Heartstoppers Kit Connor. I wasn't used to the idea of millions of people being interested in my private life by Charlotte Edwards, read by Callum Finlay. We're going to take a short break now. We'll be right back with the second half of this episode in a moment. Don't go anywhere. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, from eating cheap cheddar to mixing with posh owners of cheese caves down south, The Guardian's restaurant critic Grace Dent considers the creamy bliss of her favourite comfort food cheese and how it helped her come to terms with devastating loss. Read and written by Grace Dent. In the early 90s, I moved to Stirling in Scotland to study English literature. Aged 18, 
I saw Carlisle and my mum's house as a prison. But soon enough, I realised that I'd kill to grump moodily up our back lane, wearing a Smith's t-shirt, fractal leggings and baseball boots, juggling files of A-level history papers, while letting myself in, heading for the fridge, swinging open the door, and to find it heaving with reduced sticker treasure. I call these years the cheese years. Cheese was my saviour at university. For instance, take an anemic 24-hour SO garage frozen pizza bought on the way home from the Fubar nightclub in Stirling, scatter a handful of cheap Lancashire crumbly on top, add a pinch of mixed herbs if you can steal some from Helga from Norway's cupboard, along with a scooch of black pepper, and suddenly you have a feast. Or sling a layer of Edam onto a Findus beef burger, melt it, then slather mayo across the bun, and you've got something quite delicious. Best of all was the uni canteen where large, stodgy bowls of macaroni cheese were 22p. These would be eaten while moaning to your friends about that boy you snogged at the balls-up juggling party and how he didn't even leave a written message on your uni room door asking you out. Even if dating before phones proved to be arduous, the filling, sating, comforting power of cheese never lost its strength. Cheese does not have to be expensive. Yes, fancy Stilton is what people talk about in posh food magazines. But deep down, we all know the restorative properties of a bag of baby bells. Here's to peeling the red wax off those tiny spheres of happiness as the bus trundles home from a terrible day, popping them into your mouth whole, gob open, like an upright anaconda. And three cheers for adding a large dollop of pale, sticky dairy lee to buttered pasta. No, you won't see this on cookery shows. But you're behind closed doors now. You're eating like nobody's watching. This is Self-Care 101. It was only when I began mixing with more worldly people in London, however, that I understood the significance of cheese to the posh. We are all, at some level, cheese obsessives, or tourophiles, as they might say. If you have seen the queues at cheese stalls at the city's borough market on a Saturday morning, you'll know that they are full of men called Rufus who were sent to Ludgrove aged eight and had mothers who loved their Labradors more than them. The posh might not be big on physical hugging and affection, but if a Rufus rises at 5am to source you a truffled Baron Bygod or a rich oozing Tunworth, well, you know you're high in their esteem. Beginning my career in the media in 1996 certainly opened my eyes to how unposh I was, with my silver fillings, dropped tees, kukai boot-cut trousers, and lack of conversational Latin. This got to me so much that I began adding my middle name to my byline on Marie Claire to make me sound more glamorous. I was Grace Georgina Dent, not regular Grace Dent. 
The name Grace Dent, I thought, was two short grunts, a bit like being barked at by a pit bull with kennel cough. Grace Georgina Dent, on the other hand, sounds as if she's summered in Martha's Vineyard, can get out of an Aston Martin without flashing pantelastic, and most importantly, knows her way round a cheese board when posh folk are in the vicinity. I can clearly recall my first trip at 26 to a country house in Suffolk where the host served cheeses. Please note, posh people pluralise cheese as cheeses. Eating cheese in front of people with trust funds and names like Blaze and Romulus is nerve-wracking. And realising that the Dent family had lived all this time without our own cheese cave was humbling. No, I didn't know these existed either. A cheese cave is a very cold room underneath one's grade two listed former Elizabethan monastery country retreat where posh people store precious things that need a specific ambience. Spaniel kibble, artillery for their blunderbusses, and of course, Stilton. I learned that by serving cheeses at room temperature, their stinky richness is ramped up to the max and all the fattiness comes into its own. The flavours in cold cheese are all tangled up and stunted. Good cheese needs to be removed from your cave at least three hours pre-dinner party, which is about the time when I start sticking cheddar cubes on cocktail sticks and making a cheese and pineapple porcupine, but that's just me. Anyway, in this grand house, I'm sitting in front of an enormous board filled with strange oddities. And one of the other guests asks for a cheese harp, which I'm told is used to cut the compte and not to perform an impromptu version of Wonderwall. Someone else is brandishing a limited edition Fortnum and Mason silver plated cheese fork, which I don't like the look of. I decide to pick up a knife and tread precariously towards something that resembles a cheddar, helping myself to the lovely pointy end bit. This is in fact a grave error. You never cut the nose off the cheese. Posh people get tremendously agitated about this. They believe that something round like a brie should be served in slices like a cake so everyone gets a little bit of the middle and some of the rind. Also, if anything has blue veins in it, then good luck as one needs to slice it so that everyone can get a little of the pungent mould. Yes, you're expected to basically divide up something that already looks like an ordnance survey map so that everyone at the table gets a little of the most lush territories. Oh, and yes, you can eat the rind, but only if it's younger than 24 months. And you should never eat the rind if the cheese is wrapped in bark, like I did, unless you want someone doing the Heimlich manoeuvre while other men stand about frowning about the British comprehensive system. Regardless, despite all the secret rules and fancy instruments, I'm very glad to say that the familiar sense of cheesefuck happiness did set in. There you have it. 
Cheese is the great leveller, uniting people from across the social classes. Until I asked for some Branston pickle and maybe a couple of Tuck crackers, I was never asked back. My father, who, as you remember, spoke fluent German, had various Teutonic-style nicknames for my mother. Mein Führer was his favourite one, which came up any time Mam was laying down the odds about his half-done DIY jobs, his inability to pay any bill until the angry red one arrived, or his hogging of the TV remote to play endless episodes of Inspector Morse. Dad lived in Germany with the army in the 50s and again in the 60s. And when he spoke about it, he talked glowingly of the breakfast or Frühstück. There would be groaning tables of bread rolls, 10 types of jam, butter and honey, boiled eggs, fruits and, of course, cheese. When I was small, I can remember him making mam, cheese and jam on toast a quirk he'd picked up in Dusseldorf. I imagine it was something they roughly cobbled together in an army barracks before running out the door. Dad had about four recipes in his entire repertoire, and Mum loved this one. Thick slabs of cheddar on buttered toast with a thick layer of some of Gran's bramble jam. My parents were not a massively lovey-dovey couple. Public displays of affection were unthinkable. I can still hear them in peals of laughter in our kitchen in the 70s, as they'd seen a married couple they knew, holding hands in the street. My parents had spotted them from their car and could hardly contain their mirth. Holding hands? Normal folk just didn't act like that. But despite bickering almost every day for the best part of 45 years, and despite the fact they spent their evenings in front of the telly, sitting on different sofas, never cuddled up together, I knew they were passionately in love. Even as she cried much more over our cat Sooty dying of old age than over any of the times Dad threatened to leave, she knew he'd always come back. Take this to the German, he would say, as I passed him one day in the 80s, thrusting into my hands her special silver jubilee mug filled with white tea and a cheese and jam toasted sandwich for her. The German, another of his nicknames. Really, that is all a long-term relationship is. Perseverance, companionship, nicknames and in-jokes. I would transport the cheesy, jammy sandwich from his hands by the toaster to her on the sofa with a message from him. Dad says he loves you very much, I'd say. <laughs> Must be after something. Sometimes I try to pinpoint the last time they set eyes on each other. It is so muddled in my head, an overgrown forest filled with care homes in lockdown, cancer appointments, the rot of dementia, and goodbyes that never mattered to him, as he didn't even know she'd been there. There was no great goodbye, just a fizzling out, and half a year of no contact at all. 
In the last weeks of her life, I made her a cheese and pickle sandwich, in the dark, exhausted by sleepless nights. This was one of the only proper meal things I could still feed her. I cut the sandwich into four small squares like he'd feed a child and sat on the edge of the hospital bed the council had delivered. I passed her the sandwich. She took a small bite and swallowed, then another. Cheese and pickle, I said. Yes, you don't have to eat all of it. I like it. We sat in silence. This isn't pickle, she whispered. This is, I said, scrunching up my nose. She carried on chewing and swallowed. This is jam, she replied. I picked up the sandwich and sniffed it. I thought it must be the drugs talking, but when I held it up to a sliver of light coming through the curtains from a street light, I knew she was absolutely right. She was in fact holding a cheddar and jam sandwich. In my haze of tiredness, I'd mixed up the jars. She ate a little more of the sandwich before passing me the plate and closing her eyes. Just like Dad used to make, I said. Yes, for the German. For the German. Wherever he was, he was still with her. That was It Is The Great Leveller. Uniting people from across the social classes. Grace Dent on what our love for cheese says about us. Read by Grace Dent and taken from her book Comfort Eating, which is available to buy via The Guardian Bookshop. Before you go, we wanted to tell you about The Guardian and Observer's annual charity appeal. This year, we are asking for your support to help refugees and asylum seekers rebuild their lives in safety. We're partnering with Refugee Council Refugees at Home and NACOM to provide asylum seekers and refugees with practical support, vital accommodation and a safety net against homelessness and destitution. If you can, please donate now at theguardian.com forward slash donate. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. This week's articles are read by Callum Finlay and Grace Dent and presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer was Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, 
you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.